From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Perspective on Iran today from two Coloradans, one who fought the forces led by General Soleimani, the other an Iranian-American Middle East expert. Then, Coloradans wish it were easier to get around, but they've rejected tax increases for transportation. So the issue falls to the legislature. It has been frustrating over the years to see transportation get very close to zero general fund dollars when it's such a strong priority for people across the state. Coming up, Republican perspective ahead of a new session. Later, what science tells us is going on when we experience deja vu. We promise you haven't heard this story before. And Monet's artistry went beyond the canvas to the dinner table. You know, we eat with our eyes, and the beauty of what was plated was something that he thought about. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The anticipation of a new year quickly gave way to anticipation of a different kind, how Iran might retaliate after the U.S. killed its top general, Qasem Soleimani. Members of Iran's parliament chanting death to America in response to Soleimani's death. Let's put some Colorado perspective on this, especially in a state with important military installations and many good thinkers on this subject, including Nader Hashemi, director of Middle East Studies at the University of Denver. Nader, welcome back. Thanks, Ryan. And on the phone is Carl Schneider. He has more than 20 years of military experience, first with Army Special Forces, later with NATO. He fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and went up against General Soleimani's forces, the Quds. And Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ryan. I want to start with the fact that dozens are dead and many more injured in Soleimani's hometown when a march to mourn him turned into a stampede. It has been remarkable to watch the huge crowds for funeral services. Nadar, can you help us understand how deep this mourning goes versus how much this event taps into older feelings in Iran? That's a great question. Um, Iranian political culture Uh, has been deeply shaped by, I think, three overlapping and intersecting themes. Um, There's a long tradition for uh, demands uh, for democracy, democratization. Um, There's also a uh, very strong theme of anti-imperialism based on Iran's very troubled relationship with global powers over the last 200 years. And there's also the theme of... um, of nationalism that we're seeing right now, that um, the regime in Iran is cynically manipulating nationalism and anti-imperialism to shift attention away from the demands for democracy, which were the focus of Iranian politics just a couple of months ago, where nationwide protest really rocked the regime. Um, And so what we're seeing effectively in Iran today is uh, the very catastrophic consequences of Donald Trump's misguided and chaotic foreign policy actually bolstering the regime in Iran, undermining the work of democratic activists and civil society activists, and allowing the Islamic Republic to shore up its sagging legitimacy by by, by manipulating the themes of anti-imperialism and nationalism uh, to its own benefit. 
Well, listen, there's little doubt that Soleimani was an enemy of the United States. He's being called a war criminal. The the disagreement is obviously over whether the U.S. ought to have assassinated him and how the Trump administration went about that. Um, You're going to hear that debate in a thousand other places. But I want to ask each of you what this means for Iran and the broader Middle East, because the forces that Soleimani led have connected to Iraq, Afghanistan, Lebanon, Syria, the Palestinian territories. Uh, Carl, I guess first off, are, are, what, what is your assessment of Soleimani's killing? Well, I, first, I'd like to make a point that uh, you know, assassination is a term that uh, I would prefer a military term to describe the operation, uh, as he was, in my opinion, a legitimate military target, um, neutralize or destroy. He certainly was a command and control element for a military force, whether it was you know, uniform wearing or a militia or so on. So I, I would say that the word assassination is inappropriate in this case. Uh, second, you know, at the tactical and operational level, uh, it was a long time coming. Uh, he was leading his forces and the militias against uh, the U.S. and what we're trying to do in, in stabilizing Iraq. At the strategic level, I would say that this certainly opens up uh, Pandora's box. Um, you know, whether or not it was a sound decision strategically, only time will bear that out. But it certainly sends a message. Uh, Donald Trump is certainly sending a message that should have been sent uh, decades ago that, you know, Iran's interlocutor uh, activities don't really jive with the rest of the world and what we're trying to do in in a peaceful environment. I think that um, his death will be a catalyst for change, and I would suggest that there may be, in a few months, a a deeper change within Iran as the democracy advocates uh, kind of come out of the woodwork again. And yet, I strongly, well, I strongly disagree with that. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Um, I've studied Iran. I have scholarly expertise in particularly Iranian democracy, and in fact, the effects are going to be the exact opposite. And we're seeing it right now. What do you make of that, Carl? I mean, Nader's point here is that this has bolstered the forces that are opposing democratization. Well, uh, I would say initially, yes. And then we can have a spot six months from now to talk about this, and that would be great. Sure. (laughs) Um, But I think that, um, you know, initially, yes, there is the the immediate anger at uh, the killing of a person who was somewhat revered by a portion of the population in Iran. But I would suggest that there's a lot of other people there that have been oppressed by him and the government and want nothing more than democracy and freedom within their own country. How, how might this be felt close to home here in Colorado? Nutter, how would you answer that? I mean, we're on the precipice of another Middle Eastern war that looks very similar to the lead up uh, to the Iraq war in 2003. Um, Donald Trump is sending troops to the Middle East. There's roughly 70,000 American troops there. If this goes forward, um, the possibility of Coloradans fighting in that war is very serious. There's also the bigger problem here that no one has really talked about, that unleashing another war on a already broken and fragile Middle East uh, poses the risk of um, increasing the levels and the 
extent of radical extremism. Up until now, radical extremism in the Middle East has been largely a Sunni Muslim phenomenon. If Donald Trump continues down this destructive path, he runs the risk of unleashing a new form of religious extremism, this time coming out of the Shia Muslim community, which will be catastrophic for everyone in the world, including the people of Colorado. Nader, what signs do you look for to say this is the run-up to an all-out war? What, what is your evidence for that? It's certainly one of the fears... Uh, troop deployments to the Middle East, long-range B-52 bombers being relocated, um, tough rhetoric from both sides, Donald Trump's statement 48 hours ago that he plans to effectively carpet bomb Iran, including cultural sites, which has generated an international outrage because those are effectively war crimes on the Iranian side, talk of revenge, retaliation. Um, uh, I mean, these are all the signs that are the leading to war. I mean, Iran's pullout of the Iran, Iran just announced for 24 hours ago that are no longer going to res- observe the restrictions on its nuclear program. I mean, let that sink in. Is this going to be a, a stable Middle East if Iran decides to move forward with its nuclear program? I mean, this is a catastrophe. This is a train wreck. And Donald Trump bears most of the responsibility for bringing us to this point. Let me say that the Pentagon yeah, well, has distanced, just a moment, the Pentagon has distanced itself from this idea of attacking cultural sites. So some tension in Washington over whether that will be the avenue. Carl, jump in here. And yeah. I know that you t- too, I have your eye on oil markets, uh, but go ahead. Sure, yeah. Well, uh, certainly cultural sites uh, have the protection of the Geneva Conventions, unless, of course, those people who are occupying them are utilizing them for military purposes. And and at, at that time, those cultural sites would lose any type of protections. So just to be clear on that. Um, and, and Donald Trump's military commanders would certainly make him aware of that uh, in the process and uh, so on. But as far as um, uh, your, your, the comment about... Um, how this might be felt in Colorado. I know that right, oil, right, oil is right. on your mind. Right, how it might be felt in Colorado. Well, I mean, really, we've been at war for a long time. And if you know, hostilities and conflict continues... It will just continue to uh, be a grind for our military personnel. I mean, we have many military bases here, a lot of Army, uh, Air Force elements, and so on. And so I I think it would just, I don't want to say continue as usual, but, you know, we've been in conflict now for a long time, so they they certainly would not see any relief uh, to the current op tempo. And what would this mean economically uh, for markets? Uh, well, locally, economically, I mean, when when the military deploys out of anywhere, I was at Fort Bragg for a while, and when the military deployed, the local economy did suffer uh, quite a bit because there weren't the soldiers there spending money. Um, but they certainly realized an uptick upon the return uh, with all the the new trucks that were being bought. Um, but it's you know, globally, economically, I think the impact of a a continuing Middle East war, and and I, and I would certainly not rest all of the conflict today on the shoulders of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has inherited a long history, over 40 years since we've had any relations with Iran, inherited a long history of missteps, bad policy, and you know, trying to uh, fix the Middle East, which I don't think is possible from an outside perspective. It is something that has to come internally uh, from the Middle East. And to say that there is uh, you know, another war in the Middle East, I would suggest to you that there's just been constant conflict in the Middle East for decades. We, we know that- just add, could I just add something sure, to that? Sure, go ahead. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Carl. I mean, the, the roots of instability in the Middle East go back way before Donald Trump. But let's 
let's be crystal clear. Donald Trump's fateful decision in May of 2018 to pull out of the Iran nuclear agreement, agreement that I'm pretty sure he did not read, um, and to put crippling sanctions on Iran was the key event that created a path dependency that has produced the developments that we're seeing that has brought us to the precipice of war. You cannot objectively understand why we are having this conversation today unless you trace it back to that fateful decision. I mean, the the Iran nuclear deal already weakened by the U.S.'s withdrawal is, I think it's safe to say, hanging by a thread. Uh, Carl, how much of a line do you draw between uh, the fate of the Iran nuclear deal and the circumstances today? Um, I, I don't think that basically this gave them the the um, the, the reason to go ahead and you know publicly pull out of it. You know, I'm, I'm not privy to all the intelligence operations that are ongoing monitoring um, their adherence to the nuclear uh, non-proliferation deal. But I, w- I would suggest to you that you know they have other. Uh, operations ongoing that they weren't necessarily 100% compliant with that deal. And I really, That's not true. You know, as, as, as far as the operations go against Soleimani, I mean, I, I went up against him when I was in Iraq. I mean, his forces, the IRGC, were importing explosively formed penetrators that were killing our soldiers in droves. No amount of armor would protect you against one of those. You know, I conducted operations. The, the Iranians, you know, they sent engineers to help uh, local militia build explosively formed penetrators, and I actually conducted combat operations to find and root out those engineers and those operations. So it's been a long, ongoing uh, thing with Iran, and it's really just now that we're kind of pulling the kimono back and saying, yeah, there's, we're actually at de facto war with them, and we have been for a long time, Let's regardless wrap, of what's said in the press. Wrap up with Nader Hashimi in just the last few seconds, Nader. As things continue to unfold, what will you keep an eye on here? Um, well, how Iran responds to the, um, the, the killing of Soleimani, what, what path they choose to, to pursue to respond. They, they publicly stated that they will respond and they're going to do it in a dramatic fashion. So that's something to watch for. I'm also looking, you know, I'm, this is naive perhaps, but I'm looking for the prospects for de-escalation, perhaps to diplomacy. Um, you know, th- this is what's needed at this time. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Iran and the United States do not speak to each other. So I'm hoping that someone, perhaps like the French president, who did actually invest a lot of political capital in trying to bridge differences between the two countries, perhaps he can step into uh, this conflict and try and roll it back. But, um, you know, let this conflict, I think, in this possible war inspire people to get involved in our next election process because we are now paying a huge price for Donald Trump's um, you know, policies. Nader Hashemi, Director of Middle East Studies at the University of Denver, and we heard from Carl Schneider of the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council. We'll be right back with how Republicans at the State House plan to use their limited power in the session that starts tomorrow. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. 2020 brings another State of the State address as Governor Jared Polis lays out his agenda for the new year. I'm Joanne Allen, Thursday morning at 11. Join me and Megan Verlee along with public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kinney at the Capitol. We'll have reaction from key lawmakers in the chamber immediately following the speech. Hear about the issues affecting you. The Governor's State of the State address, live Thursday morning at 11 on CPR News. 
It's safe to say our next guest would like more power than he has. Chris Holbert of Parker leads Republicans in the state Senate, where they're in the minority. The same is true for the House, and the governor's a Democrat. All that means a limit to what Holbert and the GOP can achieve. But headed into a new legislative session, he says they'll continue to press on key issues like transportation. The sad reality for being in the double minority uh, in our current legislature is that whatever we can get done, we have to have agreement from the majority. There's no way to go around them. Have you been seeking uh, that kind of buy-in on particular issues? I, I, yes, there's been a discussion. I really appreciate the time that President Garcia afforded me and uh, the two of us went to lunch in Pueblo. I drove down and we had a very cordial lunch. This is Leroy Garcia, who is Senate president. Yes. And I, I think the president is sincere in wanting the 2020 session to kick off and run much like we ended the 1970s. And what was that lunch like in Puebla? What issues came up? I'm curious. Well, I think it's important for the majority to recognize that they get to pass any bill they want to, and there's no way the minority can stop them mathematically. However, the Constitution, the state Constitution, does not give the majority, even when they hold it in both chambers, the ability to pass an unlimited number of bills. We, we only have 120 days. We cannot go f- longer. It cannot be extended here. And that means prioritization becomes very important. And 120 days probably doesn't mean 500 or 600 or 700 bills, but it certainly can mean dozens. So the time is finite. Yes. Uh, you know, one can call a special session, but that takes time and money and it's an extraordinary step. And then anything that happens in a special session starts from square one. It yeah. doesn't carry over here. Uh, so what would Republicans like to see addressed this session? One of the themes that we've had for the past three years and will be again this year is we'd like to see at least $300 million of general fund, that's state tax dollars, allocated towards roads and bridges, transportation infrastructure. Most of the funding for our roads and bridges in Colorado come from state and federal gas tax, and that is not part of the general fund. That's not part of the budgeting process. Why is it so important to you that the general fund, that kind of... Uh, that particular purse, if you will, why that's the source. We are confident that the people of Colorado, voters, taxpayers, expect roads and bridges, transportation infrastructure to be one of the top priorities. And when we spend nothing or spend very little of their general fund dollars, uh, I think people tend to look at that and say, gosh, it doesn't seem like it's a priority. We have something in uh, the range of more than $9 billion of infrastructure need. And we'd like to see some amount put from the general fund toward roads and bridges. And $300 million has been the minimum that we've been asking for the past three years. I appreciate uh, working with the Majority Leader Fenberg last year, and we, we got that up to $300 million in the budget last year. The budget this year includes $550 million. Yeah, I was going to say transportation, an ongoing priority for both parties, and the Democratic governor suggested a total of five fifty in this year's budget for that. You complimented him publicly on that choice. But the problem is that only 50 of that is general fund, but we'd like to see $250 million general fund dollars, and that would actually get us up in the range of $800 million for the first time in a very long time. We would actually be approaching that billion-dollar level. Okay, lots of numbers yes! flying yes. around for sure. Let's get to the nugget of this. Why is transportation for you such a priority? Well, the three top priorities, I think, for most of us on both sides of the aisle are 
K through 12 public education, higher education, and transportation. Those are three things that people across the state care about, and they tend to be very important in campaigns, this being an election year. Mm. We uh, saw the defeat of, of CC last fall, and that focused on those exact issues. The argument that I've had against CC and for funding is that the... CC, by the way, would have allowed this state to keep the Tabor refunds that people get. The, the and, overage, yes. Yeah, and, and would have spent that on education and transportation. Yes, education meaning K-12 through and higher and ed. And higher ed. So that lost. And my argument against CC and through my years in the legislature and this year is that the taxpayers of Colorado have been paying us more tax dollars every year that I've been except the 2011 uh, year when I got to the House. Uh, but... Thank you, taxpayers. You've been paying more volume of tax dollars. So we continue to increase budgeting pretty much across the board for the state. But uh, it has been frustrating over the years to see transportation get very close to zero or actually zero general fund dollars when it's such a strong priority for people across the state. Two measures to raise money for transportation failed at the ballot in 2018. Yes. But your party continues to support the mechanism behind one of them. That's bonding, essentially borrowing without raising additional revenue to pay off the debt. How would that work uh, if you were to land something like that on the 2020 ballot? If we take uh, those general fund dollars that we've been pushing for and have achieved in the past few years, that's money that taxpayers are already paying into the system. If we were to allocate that as the source of, of revenue to pay back bondholders, then depending on where the bond market is and how much we can pledge to pay back every year, we can go out and bond in the tune of billions of dollars, two billion, two and a half, three billion about Leveraging that money for more yes. than you might be able to if you spent it directly. So for bonding, we would need permission from the voters. That's a Tabor question that would go to the voters. Yeah. Uh, How likely do you think that is to land on the 2020 ballot? It is in statute, and it was originally going to be on the ballot in 19. Right, and, and then, then it, was it was moved to 20 uh, in a bipartisan negotiation that happened last year during the 19th session. We moved it out one year. But I do uh, recall the governor saying he didn't want to discuss new sales tax increases or bonding. It seems like maybe bonding is not completely off the table, but I have been hearing from other legislators that there's some discussion of potentially raising the gas tax. Maybe that would be the revenue source for bonding, or maybe we just use that cash to pay cash for projects and not bond. But we, we lot, think it's lots, important. Yeah, but a, a lot of questions to answer. Yes. A lot of avenues that could be explored, roads, if you will, that you would go down. Yes. Um, this idea of raising the gas tax, it, that hasn't happened in Colorado in some time. Am I right? That is correct. Uh, it's, it's somewhere in the range of 25 years or so. Yeah. And I'm concerned about that because as we bring more hybrid and fully electric vehicles on our roads, they're not buying gas. They're not paying gas tax. So we need to be careful about putting too much uh, dependency on on gas tax, whether or not it's raised or not. That That is something we need to be very aware of. And I think there's also discussion about how people who drive hybrids or electrics might pay into transportation in some different way. 
You'd like to see that considered in any conversation. Meanwhile, of course, you have a governor who has placed a high priority on getting more electric vehicles on the road. Yes. Okay. So I want to go to a different topic here, which is repealing the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to use it as a contrast because in in the conversation about uh, roads, you know, there are a lot of kind of things you can tweak that maybe might please Republicans or, you know, result in some bipartisanship. But on something like the death penalty, Democrats proposed the repeal last year, may bring it up again. It strikes me as more black and white kind of traditional wedge issue. Is there a way to find middle ground on something like the death penalty that that might be acceptable to both sides of the aisle? I I doubt it, but maybe. Um, We're always willing to try. I think the fascinating aspect of the death penalty is that I've seen it die twice, uh, no pun intended, but fail to pass. And primarily, it has been Democrat Senator Rhonda Fields. And if listeners aren't aware of her life story, it's really important to know that. Uh, her son was not just murdered, but there was a hit put out of, on him by a gang because he was going to testify in a court, and he was assassinated. Um, and his body uh, was actually found by coincidence in the district that I represent south of Park Meadow Mall. And I've talked with Rhonda and her daughter about this and, and the testimony that they have of being in the court during the trial is powerful. I have not been in that situation. And I recall being on a committee when we were in the House together with then Representative Fields and she basically stood up to Governor Hickenlooper and said no. And that bill did not advance. And I saw Senator Fields last year take that very same position and stand up and just say no. Now, it it seemed to me that she felt very much that the conversation was rushed and not nuanced enough. Yes. And uh, maybe Senator Fields in that regard uh, had a similar observation as my caucus did about a lot of other things. But um, let me just say there was a lot of tension in the last (laughs) session, especially early on about the, the, the pace Yes. That uh, Republicans perceived Democrats moving at the lack, perhaps, of inclusion and enough dialogue around stuff. Just have a tremendous amount of respect for Senator Fields. We disagree on many things, um, but I do admire her willingness to stand up for what she believes to be right based on an experience that I think she may be the only member of the General Assembly who has uh, gone through that kind of scenario. Of course, there's a member of the legislature who lost a child in the Aurora Theater shooting as well. True. Tom's yes. Um, so we'll see. Uh, I think that the death penalty is a viable option. If someone takes the life knowingly of another, that that is the one thing that we as a society can say, well, if you're going to do that, we, we can return that to you. And we do it so rarely in Colorado. Is it a discussion uh, worth having again? Um, I, I think I'm, I'm solidly, uh, let's leave it where it is okay. a, as an option. Uh, and most members, I think of my caucus, uh, see it in a similar way. Uh, but again, there, there's this fascinating bipartisan opportunity with Senator Fields to say, no, that we probably should, ought not do that. So we'll see where it goes. I'd like to talk about healthcare before we go. A proposal that's expected from the Democrats would be the beginnings of a public option, a state-backed policy. Supporters say this will create competition for insurance companies, especially in rural areas that are sometimes served by only one private insurer. Uh, The idea is that this might cut costs. What do you think of a public option? 
I think that we should not move forward on that, at least not this year, that we should allow the reinsurance uh, bill that uh, was passed last year more time to have hopefully greater influence. So reinsurance, the state had to seek federal support for this. Uh, The Bolas administration is touting it as a way for people to save money when they buy plans on the individual market. You want to see that play out a little? Why why can't you you walk and chew gum though on this? I think that uh, too much change too suddenly um, in something so as important as healthcare is too risky. It seems precarious. And meanwhile, there's a fate of the Affordable Care Act, which allows for the reinsurance program itself is in doubt. Yes. I have always been an advocate for uh, getting government out of the doctor-patient relationship and putting it further and further into it seems a a recipe in my political perspective to make costs increase more. Okay. Uh, Are you aware that it's an election year? (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Did you know yes. that? Every two, yeah. years, every, every two years. Every other year. This is a biggie, right? It's uh, it's a presidential, it's a senatorial, and uh, uh, obviously elections uh, for the state capitol as well. How do you expect that to influence this session? Meanwhile, of course, uh, impeachment, it's hard to say it's rolling ahead at this point, but impeachment is ongoing How do you expect that to affect the relationships, the conversation, the direction of the session? I think less uh, so in the Senate. Um, We have term limits, so we can be in a chamber for eight years. Sometimes there's nine or ten if someone wins a vacancy election and comes in mid, just after halfway point. That's confusing. (laughs) But in the Senate, only half of the seats are up for election. Maybe a third of those are really, really tight competitive districts. In the House, as for the House, I was going to say, as for the House, all (laughs) sixty-five seats every two years. So they really can't avoid it in the House, and maybe that's one of the reasons that we consider we classify the Senate as the upper chamber. Um, We get to know each other a little bit better. Um, uh, We maybe have more experience, and half of us aren't up for election. So I I think that it translates to maybe less impact in the Senate, which is probably a good thing. Senator, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Anytime. Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert, Republican from Parker. Colorado's four-month legislative session starts tomorrow. How often do you get the feeling of deja vu? I experience it frequently, while the producer who worked on this next segment almost never does. Others say when they get deja vu, they're convinced it's actually a premonition So what is this phenomenon? Anne Cleary is a cognitive psychology professor at Colorado State University, and she recently published a study on deja vu and is here to clear up some of the mystery. Welcome to the program, Professor. Thank you. Deja vu means already seen. People who experience it often feel like they've experienced something before. Does that mean deja vu is based in memory? Uh, memory is certainly one of the reasons why deja vu occurs. Uh, there probably is more than one cause, but one reason that that we've discovered is that uh, it can result when the current situation that you're in is actually reminding you of something from your past that you can't quite consciously call to mind or put your finger on. Oh, that's fascinating. In a way, it's like a memory version of having a word on the tip of your tongue, but not quite being able to grasp it. 
It's sort of similar, yeah. What else might be involved if it's more than just the inability to retrieve a specific memory? So so the other piece to deja vu is that that I think makes it somewhat of a jarring experience for people is that there's this juxtaposition of, on the one hand, it feels familiar, like you've done this very thing before. But on the other, it also feels new, like that's impossible. And I think that juxtaposition of kind of a feeling of oldness yet newness uh, makes it particularly uh, jarring uh, an experience for people. So I think that's one piece of it. But I think another piece is that for a lot of people, when they have this experience, it's not just a feeling of pastness juxtaposed with newness. It's also a feeling of of knowing what's going to happen next or, or knowing what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, this is and, fascinating to me because this is partly what your re- research is about. I, I've never associated deja vu with a sense that... Uh, um, it portends the future, but this is a feeling a lot of people have. Help us understand that. Yes, yes. So so I realized that there was something to this insofar as a lot of people experience this when I started publishing on Deja Vu as being a memory phenomenon. Many, many people started reaching out to me to tell me that that's not their experience with deja vu, that for them, it's actually this sense of knowing about the future. So I began to think about ways to try to study that in the laboratory, given that we'd we'd already uh, developed a way to study deja vu from the perspective that it involves memory. Could we find a way to test uh, people's predictive ability during deja vu and if there's anything to that and if people really do have a sense of being able to predict. And what we found was that there really is something to this. Lots of people feel during deja vu that they can predict what will happen next, but it turns out to be illusory. Mm. Uh, so, for example, we we put people in virtual tours, some of which spatially mapped onto earlier tours that people had taken and forgot about, and some of which didn't. And, and so we th- found in other that words, could... you're, you're creating a deja vu moment for people by showing them uh, two images over time that are fairly yes. similar. Okay. Yes. So we create spatial similarity and we're able to increase the likelihood in the lab that people will report experiencing deja vu. So we took it a step further to see if we could also um, happen upon any association with feelings of prediction. And we did that with these virtual tours. So we would put people in these tours one after another. And when the tour stops short of a turn and people are asked if they're experiencing deja vu for that scene we would then ask them if they feel like they can predict what the direction of the next turn should be. And what we found was that when people are experiencing deja vu, they really feel very strongly that they know what the direction of the next turn should be, even though that's not the case. They're completely at chance during deja vu. They have no actual predictive ability whatsoever. When you say the next turn, I'm picturing someone in a a maze, a corn maze or something like that, (laughs) having received deja vu, getting very confident they they know the exit is to the left. It turns Mm -hmm. out they're, they're really no better at making that prediction. Yeah, it's actually very similar to a corn maze. <clears throat> I guess I want to explore how you know deja vu is about memory. I mean, we've sort of made that assumption at the beginning of the conversation. How, how have scientists even been able to say deja vu is actually a poorly retrieved memory? 
Mm -hmm. So in the experiments that we have been carrying out in my lab, we have shown it to be a memory phenomenon insofar as uh, the probability of reporting uh, a deja vu experience increases with an increase in similarity of a new situation to a situation that people viewed earlier on in the experiment but forgot or cannot retrieve. So that can, be, so, that can be tested. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. But another reason we think it has something to do with memory is that there are people who experience chronic deja vu as a symptom of seizure activity in a region of the brain known to be involved in memory, the medial temporal lobe region of the brain. And so when something goes awry in the area of the brain uh, involved in memory, it can also lead to, to experiences of deja vu that are, are symptomatic of underlying seizure activity. Oh, that's fascinating. Could researching deja vu be a backdoor way to understanding seizures? Uh, I think so. Yes. Uh, I think there there's increasing interest in that right now in the medical community as a number of publications have been coming out uh, in the past decade or so uh, trying to study deja vu uh, in seizure patients in order to better understand uh, seizure activity itself. Chronic deja vu has to be really unsettling, unmooring. Uh, I think it is. When you talk to people who uh, who experience this, it really can be. Um, in fact, uh, a lot of times what will happen is when a person starts experiencing deja vu with great frequency, they start looking online uh, for information on what deja vu means. Uh, and sometimes... Uh, People will reach out to me because I'll come up in a search online as someone who researches deja vu. Uh, and I'll, I'll usually suggest that they see a neurologist just in case uh, uh, there's an underlying, uh, that that's indicative of an underlying seizure problem. But I think it is very disconcerting uh, to experience deja vu uh, with great frequency, uh, especially when it, it starts all of a sudden. Anne Cleary is our guest, cognitive psychology professor and researcher at Colorado State University who studies déjà vu. You are also studying something called uh, déjà entendu, which has to do with hearing audio. What, what, yes. How, what is this? So you said that so perfectly. It, it is basically the, the auditory version of déjà vu. It is déjà vu for sounds. And the way that we've been uh, studying déjà entendu has been through music. Uh, and, and what we've found is actually very interesting. We're finding analogous effects with this sound-based déjà vu uh, as we find with déjà vu for scenes. So specifically, what we find is that when, when people feel for a musical piece like they're having deja entendu. They feel like they've heard this before, but but not really. Uh, they can't quite place it. They have an illusion of prediction. And so specifically, if we stop the music and ask them, uh, are you experiencing deja entendu? And then ask them, do you feel like you can predict whether the next note for the song will come from the left or from the right? Huh. When people are experiencing deja entendu, they feel like they know which direction the next sound is going to come from, even though they don't. So there, there is this sense of prediction accompanying uh, even the auditory version of deja vu. It occurs to me that there are people who interpret deja vu in an almost spiritual way, like maybe this is a function of a past life, or maybe this mm -hmm. is a sign from some sort of higher power. 
uh, in, in about the last minute, why do you think folks might pile on to deja vu something deeper, something spiritual, something, you know, I don't know, cosmic? Yeah, I think there are a couple reasons. I think one is that we we have a need to make sense of our experiences. And deja vu can be extremely jarring. You know, you have this, on the one hand, feeling that you've done exactly this thing before, but on the other, this realization that that's impossible. This is the first time that you've ever been to this place or done this thing, and so that can't be. And so to try to make sense of it, sometimes we come up with an explanation like, well, maybe it means I've experienced it in a past life. Or maybe it means, uh, especially if if you feel as if you also can predict what's going to happen next, maybe then it feels like it means that you have some sort of psychic ability. Mm. And so I, I think it stems from our need to to explain, to explain. our experiences. And <clears throat> thanks so much. This has been fascinating. Thank you. Dan Cleary, cognitive psychology professor and researcher at Colorado State University. And I feel like I've been here before. Artist Claude Monet said, Color is my day-long obsession, joy, and torment. But that didn't just apply to his paintings, many of which are on display, of course, in Denver. Monet was fanatical about the food he grew in his gardens at Giverny. There are even cookbooks about it, written by our guest, Aileen Boardman. And Aileen, uh, hello, bonjour. Oh, bonjour, Brian. Hi. I want to start with a dish that we actually whipped up a salad of red peppers, cucumbers, fennel, and some herbs. Simple and delicious. What do you think this salad tells us about Claude Monet? Well, Monet, as the great and present Alice Waters does, he made sure that his menu and the food that he brought to his guests was seasonal. The menu was planned that day. So you here you have this composition of everything that's fresh, and wonderful. It's all ingredients based on Monet's kitchen garden, his potager. His potager. And you mentioned Alice Waters, uh, the very famous chef from Chez Panisse on the West Coast. Exactly. Uh, but Monet came before her. Uh, yes. So Alice Waters, step aside. Uh, in the introduction to one of your books, Monet's Palette, such a great title, you Thanks. say that Monet considered his gardens a work of art. Tell me what you mean by that. Yes, well, you know, when you think about uh, his color palette, the one that he had in his home, the one that he had and he used to create masterpieces, color was so important to him. And, you know, we eat with our eyes, and the beauty of what was plated was something that he thought about, just as he thought about his garden itself and how he would place various uh, flowers. By the way, Ryan, his kitchen garden was surrounded by these beautiful pink peony. So he really, the attention to detail was from house to garden and then garden to house, back and forth. I understand that even the color of the house itself drew from his obsession with color. Absolutely. It's this beautiful, uh, I won't call it a pink, but it, it has pink undertones, overtones, and it has these remarkable 
green shutters, the Monet green. Okay, another recipe from the book, one that we didn't have the patience to make. Banana ice cream? I'm thinking Uh, bananas aren't native to the Normandy region of France where Giverny is located. Why banana ice cream? Uh, That's a really good point. Monet would travel the world to paint. He was one of the few artists at the time who could afford to, to, he was selling his art and he could afford to travel. He traveled to Italy and Norway and England. And when he was in Italy, he got to taste different vegetables and fruits. Uh, zucchini was one that he brought back to Normandy and bananas, which he enjoyed very much. And it was during Christmas time that he would have his chef, Marguerite, prepare ice cream using the bananas. I mean, can you imagine people coming to his home for that meal, never even knowing what a banana looked like? Uh (laughs) It's the Monet touch, the Monet magic that he brought to everything that he did. You have some personal connections to Giverny, I understand. Your mother lives there part of the year, is is that right? She does live there part of the year. She's one of the handful of Americans who 40 years ago brought Monet's garden at Giverny back to life. It was in complete ruin. Oh, my goodness. Uh, There was a wonderful man named Gerald Vanderkamp who had finished doing the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles and decided to, yeah, Ryan, he decided why not tackle Giverny, Monet's home. Uh, I would add that Gerald actually hid the Mona Lisa under his bed during the war to protect it. So that's the kind of man he was. So Mother did this, and she's been the American representative at Monet's Gardens for the past. It's going to be, this will be her 40th spring there. I find it shocking that Giverny, which is now this huge tourist attraction, was in some state of disrepair for a Yeah, time. there was no garden. There was no garden, Ryan. Uh, <sighs> and we get up to 8,000 people a day now, 20 plus million people have made the pilgrimage. I call it a pilgrimage to visit us at Giverny. And you're right. um, You know, the Monet uh, family, his sons passed it to the French government, but they did not maintain the property until Mr. Vanderkamp and the Americans raised the funds to bring it back to life. Now, it's hard to say that Claude Monet had a favorite food. He, he was a gourmand who loved a little bit of everything. But I wonder if you have a favorite recipe, either from Monet's palate or everyday Monet. Well, I'm very partial to apple tart, apple pie, tartatan, which is in Monet's palate cookbook. And it's a very regional dish to Normandy, the place that Monet decided to make his home. And apples are really the fruit of Monet's world. Um, it's too cold to grow grapes in Normandy. Mm. I think of a tart as almost an apple pie with the top revealed. Is that what I should be picturing, those beautiful apple yes, slices car- glazed? Yes, glazed, exactly, uh, with this caramelization. Any sugars that are in the, in the dish or in the fruit, any added sugars, get that sort of browning, that brulee that brings out the sweetness, sometimes a little bit of crunchiness. It just, it's served warm. It can be served with ice cream. Oh, yes. Or it could be served with some creme fraiche. 
Uh, why don't we wrap up with an appetizer? This is toasts with spread made of smoked salmon, goat cheese, and herbs. Yes. This ties back to Monet's art and his travels. I certainly don't think of salmon as uh, particularly native to that part of France. What's the story? No, What's so the, story the travels, yes, it's, it's the smoked salmon of Norway, where he would travel to paint. And so that's a little nod, a little homage, the smoked salmon chopped. It was sort of also a sort of a nod to, you know, an herbed bursan cheese, and then taking instead the fresh herbs, the chives, and then chopping up the smoked salmon and folding that into the cheese. And the fact that you can serve it cold or as it gets warmer at room temperature, it even sort of melts into the bread. Into I, I recommend a toasted bread, otherwise it would be soggy. And um, having it with a little bit of champagne, pourquoi pas? Why not? Pourquoi pas? Uh, and I'll just say, you know, Monet was captivated by the landscapes, the light of the far north. Some of his paintings of Norway are in the exhibition that runs at the Denver Art Museum through That's early right. February. Aileen, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate your time. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. And as we say, uh, in the world of Monet's palette, a toast to Monet. A toast to Monet. Aileen Boardman has written two books about Monet, Monet's palette and everyday Monet. She also produced a documentary about his life in Giverny. The Monet Show at the Denver Art Museum runs through February 2nd. That's it for us. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. <laughs>